You're listening to a podcast produced by the Jackson School of International Studies, the Center for West European Studies, and the European Union Center at the University of Washington. This and other podcasts can be found on iTunes and SoundCloud. For more information, visit us at jsis.washington.edu slash eu-west-europe. I would like to welcome you to this Zeitenwende panel. Uh, my name, for those of you who do not know me, is Sabine Lang. I am the director of the Center for West European Studies. I also direct the Jean Monnet Center of Excellence. And I'm very happy that we can have very knowledgeable and interesting people today with us in the room to discuss something that's really up on the German agenda since February of this year. February, when the Russian invasion of Ukraine started and the German chancellor um, gave a speech in the parliament in which he addressed the turn of an era, or some call it also a watershed moment for German and European security defense policy. Um, it's also maybe a Zeitenwende that we can articulate a little bit in broader terms, um, because after 16 years of Angela Merkel, we also had elections in Germany this past year, and now we have a so-called traffic uh, coalition with an alliance of Greens, Liberals, and the largest party, the Social Democrats in government. So I'm sure our three speakers will have different takes on and different angles on this issue. Uh, and I'm very, very pleased to have with us, and I'll introduce them now in the order that they will be speaking, to have with us uh, from Germany, actually, late in the evening, uh, Dr. Niko Svitek. Niko Svitek was the former German academic exchange professor here at UDAP for three years, from 2018 to 21. Um, he is now working on a project that deals with the internationalization of higher education for the Association of University Presidents in Germany. And his research is really focusing on something that we need to explain this Zeitenwende, namely inner German party politics and European party politics with a focus on Bündnis Monsieur the Greens the Green Party. Um, so we hope to get some insights, and I'm sure we will, about the domestic aspects of the Zeitenwende from the program. And then our second speaker sitting right next to me is um, Dr. Sweetek's successor, basically. This is uh, Dr. Chiara Pielenborn. She is uh, the current DAD professor since three weeks, I assume, about in Seattle. And uh, Dr. Pierre Braun brings to us a wealth of knowledge about Germany and Europe in terms of its public diplomacy, uh, focusing on public diplomacy towards Russia, towards Central Asia, but she is also a keen observer of German foreign and uh, foreign policy primarily, and is uh, has had previous uh, engagements uh, as a professor uh, of macrosociology in Marburg and at the Asia Europe Institute in Malaysia. Um, last but not least, next to Dr. Björgon sits Ambassador John Koenig. John Koenig is uh, not a newcomer to some of you. Uh, we are very lucky to have him in the region and have them contribute to events that we organize quite frequently. Thank you for that, John. And uh, he has more than 20 years of European affairs under his belt, living in Europe and working in many functions. Uh, his last post was as US ambassador in Cyprus, um, renegotiating and negotiating settlement politics. Um, previously, he worked as the um, 
political advisor to NATO Joint Forces Command in Naples. And then he also, that's always my favorite, he was <laughs> the deputy chief of Mission in Berlin uh, during heightened times of tension in Berlin. So um, John Koenig's specialty is defense, security, policy, and foreign policy more broadly in Europe and Germany. And this is exactly what we have asked him to talk to us about in the Zeitenbank. So ask each of them to have 10 to 12 minutes. I'll somewhere have a red piece of paper that I'll wave at minute 13 or so for you uh, to give us their take. Um, before we start, I also would like to thank the people and the institutions that made this happen, um, that also made what we see behind me happen here. Um, first and foremost, the German Embassy in Washington, D.C., who has looked favorably upon an application that involves students and publics to assess this type of and the notion in Germany. Uh, this is uh, happening within their campus week, Germany, that they uh, organize every fall. So thank you to the embassy. Also, thank you to Steph Welch, who might or might not be here. I'm not seeing her Department of Germanics, who did a lot of advertising, designed the poster for us. To Phil Lyon and Emma Delafray, who are the major organizers of this event for us. And last but not least, to my colleagues in German studies, Sabina Dorfke and others, who have helped us uh, in making this work. So without further ado, Nico, I will turn this over to you and you will speak about a novel coalition format in stressful times, assessing the first year of social democratic green liberal government condition in German domestic politics. Thank you, Nico. Thank you so much, Sabina, for the friendly introduction and the invitation to this panel. Uh, it's wonderful to be back in Thompson Hall, even if it's only virtually. Um, I would have loved to do this in person, um, but I guess this way is a lot better for my carbon footprint. So, um, yeah, and also, I mean, talking about the topic, I guess you could not have picked a better week for this panel because um, what we've just seen this week is very special considering coalition politics. So uh, most of you might have seen that Olaf Scholz, the German chancellor, took a very unusual step just a few days ago, declaring his formal authority, Richtlinien competence, to decree an extension of the runtime of three nuclear power plants. Um, and in doing so, he overruled both of his coalition partners. And that's a very, very rare step. Uh, and I would argue will have lingering effects on the overall coalition uh, uh, dynamics. So um, interesting week, uh, but let's start at the beginning. Um, so we just heard that uh, the current coalition government in Germany is made up of social Democrats, Green Parties, uh, Green Party and Liberals. Uh, and they came into power after the last uh, Bundestag election uh, fall of last year and is headed by Chancellor Scholz. Um, it's the first alliance of these three parties on national level. If you took one of my UDAP classes, you will know all the other constellations by heart. Um, and because of the party colors, just an addendum, uh, red, uh, green, yellow, that's why we call them the traffic light coalition. So if you were wondering about that, um, two things are very important to know. First, the coalition kind of fuses the left, so social Democrats and Greens, and the right, the liberal spectrum of the party system, kind of bridging the, the camp cleavage. Um, and second, it's the first ever three-party coalition uh, on national level. So you could argue that there are missing routines of coordination and conflict uh, resolution, which are kind of tested and tried for two-party coalitions. Um, so for instance, what we see now is that you have the phenomenon of the odd man out, kind of the liberals feeling a bit alienated by the other parties who have cooperated before. And we know from research that novel coalitions tend to be less stable than other tried and tested established models. So um, the German party system is typically best described by a two-dimensional policy space. Um, so the first dimension, social economic dimension, 
capturing classical issues like more or less state uh, involvement in the market, more or less regulation, higher or lower taxation, and so on. Uh, and the second, uh, a social cultural dimension representing values, uh, which typically runs from a traditional authoritarian to a more progressive uh, libertarian pole. And why is this important? It's interesting to see that the three political parties um, differ in their distance on these dimensions. So um, they're a lot closer concerning social cultural issues than in socioeconomic, uh, in a socioeconomic conflict. And I would argue that this captures the conflict dynamic in this alliance very well. One last brief precursor, uh, Sabina already touched on this, um, but we have to understand that this is kind of stressful times for German politics. Um, we like to forget, or we hope to forget that there's still an ongoing global pandemic. And of course we have the, um, the, the war Russia is waging against Ukraine. And that's what ultimately sparked the term Zeitenwende and kind of has these pre and post Zeitenwende um, context. And that's kind of how I try to sort the, the domestic politics in these pre and post Zeitenwende. So um, I don't have long, so I'll just focus on, on some key policies, but I guess we can talk more about it in, in the Q&A. So um, the coalition rather amicably started to work on a, a reform of a transsexuality law, making it easier to register a gender and name change. And uh, for instance, they initiated proceedings to um, legalize uh, marijuana. Uh, so both clearly progressive issues in a social cultural dimension and not a, con not a lot of conflict between the three parties. Um, one signature project was uh, a public transport ticket valid for the whole of Germany, just for nine euros a month, which was meant to get people to try out public transport and kind of to test alternatives to commuting by car, you know that Germans typically love their cars. Um, it was originally understood as an element of environmental policy, but it's interesting to see that since the start of the war in Ukraine, it's also framed as a relief package. Um, so as a remedy against inflation uh, or as help against rising gas prices. Um, and the coalition just recently agreed on a model to make this permanent starting uh, next year. Um, those were kind of examples for successful cooperation. There is one example for uh, a less successful project, and that was the attempt to introduce uh, a general vaccination mandate going back to the pandemic um, early uh, this year. Uh, it had support of the Social Democrats and the Greens, uh, but faced a lot of resistance in the Liberal Party uh, with their emphasis on individual freedom. And this proved to be an unresolvable conflict for the coalition and was only solved by, you could say, a trick. Um, so the vote in parliament, the final vote, was labeled to be an individual ethical decision independent of party lines. So when, as expected, uh, the, the, the vote failed and um, you know, the, the proposal failed, uh, it meant that the missing majority was not equated to a missing majority for the coalition government. Um, so kind of, kind of a trick to solve this uh, conflict. Um, going to, turning to the post Zeitenwende uh, category, um, you can see that coalition politics was already difficult before, but now it became even more difficult because um, uh, of course what happened increased the pressure uh, on the government. Uh, and the core, of course, is the reorientation of Germany's um, defense and foreign policy, I guess, which Chiara and John will talk more about. Uh, but the domestic part of this, I would say, is the financing um, aspect, because, of course, in the speech Sabine mentioned, Ch uh, Chancellor Scholz pledged a massive increase of the uh, military budget um, in, in Germany. Um, on the one hand, looking at coalition dynamics, this created problems with the Green Party because of their pacifist roots. Uh, and on the other hand, the Liberal uh, Party, the FDP, um, ran for the election, ran on a platform of financial constraint and debt reduction and repudiation of higher taxation. So where's this money supposed to, to come from? Um, 
again, they found you could say a creative workaround. So the 100 billion euro package was declared to be a special fund set up parallel to the regular state budget. So it doesn't, in that sense, doesn't increase the state debt, even though it does. Um, of course, uh, in addition, the war in Ukraine affected the energy supply in Germany, uh, which in, in large part was set up to rely on cheap Russian gas, coal and oil. Uh, and you probably all heard about the ongoing um, North Stream pipeline drama. Um, so that was, uh, we've had that discussion for a long time in Germany. Um, on the one hand, you could argue that speeds up the transition to renewable energies. Um, uh, but at the same time, it in massively increases prices, uh, energy prices, which uh, generates a lot of unrest and protests from, from citizens in Germany. Um, here we had a, a couple um, extensive relief uh, packages, kind of incremental packages. And the last one is kind of double the size of the one we had for the military. Um, and again, we have the problem with how do we solve this with the debt? And uh, again, it was put into a special fund that already existed, but the money, money is put into a special fund. So again, some sort of creative workaround to not alienate uh, the liberal party that is very much focused on financial constraint and budget discipline. Um, more difficult were the calls uh, to extend nuclear energy production in Germany. That was the example with the Richtlinien competence I gave at the beginning. And this proved to be very problematic for the Green Party uh, because phasing out nuclear energy in Germany, so next year, uh, the, the last power plants will go uh, off the grid. Um, that's the biggest achievement in their party history. So. Um, for them, it was very difficult to agree to an extension. Um, and on the other hand, for the Liberal Party, it was very important to pressure this issue to kind of be uh, recognizable as an independent player in uh, the coalition. And you, you already heard that Chancellor, Chancellor Scholz put his foot down, uh, resolved the conflict for now. So grudgingly, the, the parties agreed. But ultimately, this will destabilize the coalition. And we probably will see more of, of this conflict, because the coalition has to be based on, on consensus and compromise. One last interesting um, example, um, um, which I think speaks to the dynamic of the coalition, the minimum wage was just increased. Um, that is, again, a signature issue for the Social Democrats. Uh, they um, bargained, negotiated into the coalition agreement. Uh, the the market-friendly uh, Liberal Party is less enthusiastic about it, but because of the Zeitenwende, um, this has a different framing. So now it can be seen um, as a package uh, countering rising prices and inflation. So it was easier to, to kind of, as a coalition, uh, implement this very leftist or social democratic um, policy. Okay, that was just very, uh, very brief uh, oversight over the domestic uh, politics. Um, I hope that gave you a first impression um, uh, and I'm happy to talk more about this in the Q&A and, and the discussion. Thank you. Thank you much, Nico. All right, so let's turn this over to Chiara Pierrebon and widening our horizon into Europe foreign policy. Thank you so much for the introduction of Nico. I think our speeches today will really provide an overview of different dimensions of the time. My work is like in different. So, um, I think there has been a tightness uh, since the uh, Ukraine conflict, so-called Russian aggression on the 24th of uh, February, so so-called Russian operation from other Indian uh, and other, other sources, and the European reaction was immediate, I would say, already on the 27th of February, there were official speeches on behalf of um, the president of the European Commission, Mr. von der Leyen, talking about a watershed moment for Europe, uh, announcing that for the first time in its history, the European Union um, is going to provide purchase and delivery weapons to the country, which is under attack. On the same day, 
the chancellor Olaf Scholz um, gave a speech in Athens that also talking about it, and also talking about science and the historical turning point for Germany and historical turning point for Europe. And in particular, in his speech, um, Scholz talked about the need for Germany to reinvent uh, itself as a European security. Uh, Nico and Sabine mentioned this special fund, military fund, which was established as a, let's say, reaction to this site and then the 100 billion euro special fund. I think John talked about it in the details. Second important aspect that Scholz introduced already on the 27th of uh, February was the commitment of Germany to finally uh, invest annually more than 2% of its GDP in the So I will talk about that as well. These are kind of revolutionary moments for Germany. And uh, on the same day, also the German um, foreign minister, Annalena Baerbock, gave a speech. And her speech pointed out also change in the approach that uh, characterizes Germany. Germany has always been very diplomatic, uh, also in its way of looking at Russia, but Annalena Baerbock was very clear on that day. And she said, although diplomatic attempts were made up to the last minute, the Kremlin struck us along, lied to us, Putin wanted this war. So this is, it's, uh, I would say, huge change that has taken place as a reaction to the uh, Ukraine crisis, a change that now is affecting the work of the coalition in Germany and generally this is a major topic for the formation of new coalition both in other countries, such as Italy, the country I'm from, where the government is really questioning what will be our position vis-a-vis -vis the world in Ukraine. It seems very relevant, very aspects. For the government. Now, it is important, I think, to contextualize this Titan Bender in the overall moment of uh, transformation, maybe, uh, that the new uh, government, the new traffic light coalition is trying to implement in Germany. So it would be maybe a mistake to consider the crisis in Ukraine as the reason why now we're talking about the Titan Bender. Titan Bender is part of the overall restructuring of Germany's uh, security, a restructuring that was already contemplated in the uh, coalition agreement signed in, to, in December 2021, a coalition agreement covering major aspects of its program, government program between 2021 and 2025. So if we take a look at the coalition agreement, we can see that one important change has already been introduced or was introduced before the war, the idea of um, formulating, elaborating a new comprehensive national security strategy <clears throat> introduced in this coalition agreement. And, um, and I think what is very relevant in the new national security strategy for Germany is idea of developing it, it should be developed within the first year of government, is the fact that this process is seen as a participatory process. So when the foreign minister Berger talks about the national security strategy to talk about uh, she talks about the participatory process for the development of our strategy but also the essence of what foreign policy means for me and the federal foreign office together so not just that we have dialogue between capitals between ministers but also between people because it is a question of human security, it is a question of the freedom of every individual here where we are and worldwide. This is part, as I was saying already, of the coalition agreement. This is an important project, one of the main pillars of the current uh, federal foreign office, the development of a new national strategy for Germany through a participatory approach, which means to the involvement of 
not only experts, but of regular people, citizens. If you take a look at the um, web page of the, the federal office, you will see that uh, a lot of pictures are provided and a lot of informations are provided concerning this process, showing really that people were just invited in public events. They were providing a space to discuss what they think about German citizens, German residents, what they think about security in Germany, and what they see as special needs, what they see as special priorities, and even if you look at, let's say, the framing offered by the federal foreign minister, you will see that she wants to hear what citizens have to say and shape the new national strategy based on certain, let's say, opportunity that citizens see and residents of Germany see in this situation. I think this is an important process that has been going on since March 2022, uh, which we will or should end. By the end of the year, the new strategy should be launched by 2023. And uh, the Minister Berber has also been traveling throughout Germany, organizing different sort of uh, uh, security policy treaty to make sure that this process is perceived as participatory and is implemented as, as such. So one central aspect of the new national security strategy of Germany is the development of a feminist foreign policy. This is also a topic that has been uh, introduced already in the coalition agreement of December 2021, where feminist foreign policy um, is described as um, something that Germany would like to develop. I'm citing from the Coalition Agreement now, together with their partners, we want to strengthen the rights, resources, and representations of women and girls worldwide and promote social diversity in the spirit of a feminist foreign policy. We want to appoint more women to international leadership positions and ambitiously implement and further develop the National Action Plan for the implementation of the UN Resolution 2025. So um, the development elaboration of new feminist foreign policy for Germany has become a priority for Minister Verbo, uh, and her work is very well documented on the web page of the federal uh, minister, uh, federal foreign minister. You will see that if you take a look at the presentation, I couldn't project that, but she provides a lot of speeches also in this field, provides kind of a, a schedule of all the activities that have been conducted in this, in this field. There are a lot of links also to other organizations, other platforms uh, discussing and contributing to the elaboration of Germany's famous uh, um, foreign policy. And on the web page of the German Foreign Office, some general, I would say, um, information about what the German version of it should be um, are provided, such as uh, the fact that Germany's feminist foreign policy should be based on gender equity and equal participations that are seen as preconditions for long-term peace and security in the world and as the way in which we want to work together in foreign security and development policy. The Federal Foreign Office applies a so-called 3R-D formula, so they aim to promote the rights of women and marginalized groups the representation of women and marginalized group and groups and to provide the resources to make sure that their rights are respected and their representation is enhanced. Germany also wants to enhance diversity. So that's the reason why this formula is called 3R plus D. The elaboration of the new feminist foreign policy for Germany um, is seen as a, also a consultation uh, process. Um, the uh, German um, Foreign Office has been involved in its own representation in Berlin and abroad, but also a lot of representatives of civil society, experts, academia, international partner, 
Um, and uh, and you can see that the ways in which this process of um, let's say consultation takes place is through events and conferences where all these actors and stakeholders are brought together to discuss what Germany's feminist uh, foreign policy should mean, also based on best practices and examples of countries with more experience. One example of these activities is the conference that took place in Berlin in September of this year, where there was a special high-level segment devoted to the war in Ukraine and to discuss how feminist foreign policy could contribute to the solution of the conflict. And this is, as we say, well documented online. We can find a lot of information about this process. And online, you can also find information on the content of this discussion. This special session was uh, devoted to addressing questions such as what Putin's war of aggression means from a feminist um, viewpoint, to what extent gender relations are affected by this war, how can feminism contribute to different, more forward-looking, de-escalating and more human solution of this conflict, and how can art and literature give a voice to those who often remain mute in the news? These are just some questions that were kind of guiding the discussion special high-level segment. Now, although the concept of feminist foreign policy is new for Germany, this is not something new for Europe, the country that has, uh, I think, the, the oldest and most comprehensive feminist foreign policy in Europe is Sweden, which started already in 2014. It's working elaborating its own feminist foreign policy. Sweden actually introduced the support of three art formulas the idea of uh, increasing promoting rights, representation, and resources for women. At the same time, Sweden has also created a special position of ambassador for gender equality and coordinator of feminist policy. Sweden is clearly the country that Germany is also looking at for the elaboration of its own France is also working in this field and has elaborated its own concept of feminist diplomacy, advocating for gender equality in international forums and for the inclusion of more, let's say, gender dynamics and uh, and objectives in its own promotion of gender equality in its own development population. So for instance, France would like by 2025 to make sure that 75% of the projects in the field of official development will improve gender equality. This is revolutionary important. If we look at other European countries, Denmark, Norway, and Spain are also working in this field, are also, let's say, engaged in developing more gender-sensitive approaches in foreign policy. And at the EU level, I would say the EU started a little bit later engaging with this issue in 2020, the European Parliament suggested, invited the European Commission to start working on this uh, issue following the example of EU member states. And in 2021, a new gender action plan on gender equality and empowerment and external relations was launched by the European Commission covering the period 2021-2025 with the aim of making sure that 85% of official development assistance we go to programs that include gender equality as a significant formulating objective. So 10% more compared to, to France. Now, to conclude, I think my time is over. Um, German feminist foreign policy is a new phenomenon, a manifestation of exciting events that started already before the war in Ukraine. 
the elaboration of the German feminist foreign policy is important and it contributes to promote a Germany's uh, international image as a champion of gender equality and inclusiveness and taming down maybe another dimension emerging from the current crisis in Ukraine, which is the militaristic, new militaristic position that Germany is, uh, is taking, something that is a novelty, I mean, since World War II, Germany decided to step back from the sector, right? And now this is a novelty that also other European countries might see with some provocation, I would say, some words. At the same time, the new government, government coalition finds itself under a lot of international pressures. Its partners, international partners, want now deeds and not words. They don't want to be engaged too much in this discussion of what feminist foreign policy means and should be. And a very heated discussion took place in April of this year when the Deutsche Bundestag decided to um, vote in favor of supplying heavy weapons to Ukraine. And this heated discussion kind of revealed that there is a lot of fragmentation either in the public discussing, partaking in the conceptualization of the new um, Germany's feminist foreign policy, although it is possible to identify three main streams, three main, let's say, school of thoughts, we have very conservative um, people who believe this is not the time to elaborate the feminist foreign policy. It will not work in this time of crisis. It should not be the priority right now. We have a normative activism stream saying we need to be more feminist, we need to be more pacifist, we need to stop the weapons to Ukraine. And we have then the pragmatic one. So for feminist foreign policy pragmatism as the one which is practiced by the German government, considering the feminist foreign policy as compatible with measures such as armed delivery for acute defense, but not explain how this related the overall feminist foreign policy, and also unable to explain how feminist foreign policy is appropriate to provide shorter intervention in response to the Really to conclude now, uh, what can be said for sure is that the new Germany's uh, feminist foreign policy will offer a more comprehensive, integrated, and inclusive framework for foreign policy, which will allow also to look at rights and voices of more marginalized people. It is a challenge to use and elaborate such a such a difficult concept in a time of crisis but this concept this approach will surely be very useful once the crisis should be over to find a more long-term sustainable solution for the missing thank you very much right, and now we turn over to ambassador Koenig and I would assume a little bit of a different take on where Germans like men is. Right. I mean, I would just say uh, now for something completely different. The, um, uh, first of all, thank you to uh, Zadina and uh, also to uh, Phil and Emma for uh, their help in uh, having me here. I really appreciate it. And thank you, of course, to Nico and to Chiara for their excellent presentations. I'm going to speak today from the perspective of uh, a foreign affairs practitioner, uh, by and large, um, about Germany, the Ukraine war, and the evolution of European security. And like a practitioner, I'm going to start with what we call a bluff, my bottom line up front. Um, that will also take me a couple paragraphs, but I hope to keep it short, my bottom line. Uh, German policy, particularly security policy, often seems sort of Janus-faced. Um, looking both east and west, looking uh, sort of in different directions from much of the rest of Europe, especially its neighbors. Um, Germany is genuinely, and I would say quite naturally, uh, the hinge in European security policy. And it's a mistake, I think, to look to Germany to be an anchor for European security policy. Based on my judgment, it simply will not happen. Germany has played this role for 30 years, ever since the end of the Cold War. You know, when we talk about Zeitenwende, this is a kind of a grand word. The last time Bender was used a lot, I think it was Energiewende, which has been something of a disaster in security policy terms. And then, of course, Wiebende, the end of the Cold War and the reunification of Germany. 
So this is a huge idea when you start using the word agenda. And this agenda, I would say, deals with external circumstances concerning the environment in which German policy is developed and executed. It actually encompasses the notion, I believe, of a new Cold War in Europe. Certainly a lot of the language that's being used in association with the Titan and it is reminiscent of the Cold War. So will this lead Germany to resume its former role as a sort of main bulwark against Moscow in Europe as it was in the Cold War? I would say almost certainly not. Uh, it has often been said that Germany lacks a strategic culture. This is a common complaint in think tanks in Washington and even in Brussels. Um, but what is strategic in this sense? In my view, Germany's approach is strategic. It's based, however, on a special set of German interests, not on the interests that sort of prevail in what I would call the transatlantic security establishment. Um, but that's, at any rate, just the wrong way to look at uh, things, strategic versus non-strategic. The issue is really about interests, I would say, and Germany's interests are distinct from those of its neighbors, and this should not be something that's hard to take. They are no more distinct than, well, let's say, Italy's interests or France's interests, but the expectations with regard to Germany are simply different. Interests and threat perceptions, I would say, uh, suggest that Germany will remain the hinge uh, for the foreseeable future in the uh, European security scheme, um, serving its own distinct set of interests, often to the frustration of its Western partners. And that includes everything that Chancellor Schultz has announced in the context of the typing uh, And another constant will likely re remain as well. And that is, there is a peculiar German attachment to security dependence on Washington, which I am afraid will never end unless we do something about it. So how has the Zeitenwende played out in the policy of the German coalition and what should we expect? As a US and NATO official, I, I often focused on threat perception. It's a very useful concept to apply, employ in uh, deciding on policy in the security realm. And I believe that threat perception is critical to understanding Germany's role. Over the past, let's say decade, Germany's threat perception has gradually shifted, that's for sure especially began in uh, 2014 with Russia's invasion uh, and annexation of Ukraine and sort of surreptitious invasion of uh, the Donbass region of Ukraine. Um, and it's also confirmed by polling data. Polls in recent years have generally shown growing skepticism in Germany, as in other European countries, toward Russia and also China. And this past spring, the Pew uh, Research did an excellent survey uh, about uh, trends in Germany with regard to attitudes toward Russia, which revealed that Germany's attitude toward Russia has indeed become highly more skeptical uh, in the last one to two years. And at the same time, it's renewed a kind of new faith in, uh, in NATO and uh, the United States and the West. Uh, German correspondents are typically about divided about down the middle with regard to the provision of lethal assistance to Ukraine, which is not surprising given the history of this issue and Germany's special history. And one poll finding has gotten the most attention, I would say, especially in the German media over the past several months. And that is uh, the ZDF, the first German television channel, runs a monthly poll, and it continues to show that Germans are prepared to continue supporting Ukraine despite the likely impact it'll have uh, in terms of higher energy costs into the winter. So this is quite impressive. It's it stayed around 70% uh, for most months, the, those who, are, who say yes to that, and it will likely, it even went up to 74% in September. So there's been a convergence to a degree in the threat perception between Germany and other countries, including the United States and its Western European partners, and even the Central European partners, which are far more skeptical of Russia. Uh, so its response, I would say, to this new threat perception and in the, the event of, uh, of the Russian invasion of Ukraine, Schultz laid out in his famous Zeitenwende speech to the Bundestag five lines of activity. The first is to support Ukraine, including with weapons. The second is punish Russia, and especially Putin with sanctions. The third is fulfill NATO solidarity obligations by supporting allies and increasing defense investment up to that 2% benchmark. And this also included the 100 billion uh, euro special fund that's been described, which is extended over some years, probably five years, uh, following new and more 
independent energy policy was item number four, and implement a new and more realistic foreign policy was item number five. How has Germany performed on these? I would say quite well, to be honest, when you consider how difficult it could be to implement a government program, except on one, which is no surprise, and that is defense investment. The uh, 100 million euro fund is not as meaningful as it looks in paper. Um, even with this uh, increase, it is highly unlikely that Germany will ever meet the 2% of GDP threshold that, that Europe and the United States have agreed on as the benchmark for NATO. This is uh, regrettable, but Germany has never even come close, and it is estimated that by the uh, German Economic Institute that even in 2023, there will be an 18 billion euro shortfall, and that's a substantial shortfall in German terms. So they will be in the like 1.7 to 1.8 range. Um, this is a very serious problem because this has accumulated over years a Bundeswehr, which has, uh, which is not a capable force. The um, the, there were much more scandalous reports issued some years ago before they began to increase the investment in the Bundeswehr. But the Bundeswehr has very little equipment to share. And you know the Bundeswehr has very few operational units. So um, the fact is there's kind of a gaping hole in defense investment in the center of Europe, which Germany is responsible for and doesn't really plan to close, um, except rhetorically. Um, and it has been institutionalized somewhat. Uh, Nico talked about the dis decision not to apply the, the debt break to a lot of expenditure over the last several years, including during the uh, COVID pandemic, and now with uh, the cost of uh, covering people's energy expenses and also the $100 billion, $100 billion defense fund. This probably cannot uh, continue. And, um, in 2023, I think it's widely expected that the debt, uh, the uh, the debt break will be applied, and if that happens, we have a very strange situation because Germany is likely to be in recession in 2023. Um, inflation is at uh, as at record levels for uh, Germany's in the last 40 years. It has serious uh, sort of factors driving it toward more deficit spending. Um, so it's very hard to predict how the uh, uh, traffic light coalition is going to cope with this range of challenges without the FDP departing the coalition, I would say. Um, uh, but let's look a minute at Ukraine. Germany has, in fact, done more for Ukraine than people give it credit for. It has done in the, uh, it has provided about 9% of external security assistance to Ukraine since the um, uh, Russian invasion. France has only provided 2%. Only two countries have provided more assistance than Germany, and that is the United States, which comes in at a whopping 49%, and the UK, which has uh, also provided substantially more assistance than Germany. But Germany is subject to the most criticism. Why is that? Um, Poland and other Eastern allies and many in the United States are constantly hounding Germany for not doing an adequate job of providing support for Ukraine. I would say a lot of this um has to do in part with the presentational politics of the German side, Schultz's hesitancy to provide leopard main battle tanks and Mardar infantry fighting vehicles doesn't look good. Um, but it's also because I think there's a long-standing frustration in Central Europe and the United States and the UK with regard to German security policy. And that, I'm afraid, is not likely to resolve itself. So I'm going to just take a couple minutes, I hope I'm not out of time, to talk about what I think this means as we look ahead, because this isn't just about Ukraine. Ukraine is a huge challenge. I would say uh, the next three to six months will be hugely important for the outcome of the war in Ukraine, but this are, these are still early days in my view, more the end of the beginning rather than the beginning of the end. Um, but let's look beyond it anyway. I, I'm going to draw a rather peculiar analogy here. I think Germany's place in NATO is evolving to be a lot like France's place in NATO during the 1960s and 1970s. Um, but for very, very different reasons. France wanted a more ambitious global NATO back when the United States and its other European partners wanted to combine NATO to North Atlantic defense issues. And uh, France also 
have a very high regard for its own national defense capability and its own autonomous defense capability. Um, and uh, didn't want and want to limit the dependence of Europe and France in particular for security on the United States. Germany comes out of this from the diametrically opposed position. Germany wants to confine NATO basically to a European defense role. It reluctantly participated in uh, expeditionary missions in the last phase of NATO activity. And, you know, I think it reluctantly went along with the sort of decision to bring China as a defense and security issue into NATO, would prefer to deal with that in a different realm. But the um, Germany has always favored a more Eurocentric approach to defense. It has always been a defense freeloader since the end of the Cold War. And uh, it has, in fact, embraced the notion of defense and security dependency for many reasons that go deep into German history and German political culture. But there are, the implications are interesting of this kind of quasi Franco role for, for Germany in, uh, in European defense, I think. Because as with uh, France, I think uh, this role for Germany has already and will continue to stymie the development of security and in the European and EU context. It is a major break on further development of um, European autonomous defense capability. Um, it has increased European dependence on the US and Washington would very much like to focus elsewhere. And it has persisted for many years through many different manifestations uh, in the EU, NATO, and national context. So if you were to ask me to forecast where things are headed, I would guess that Germany will remain something of a security and defense free rider, despite all of the Zeitenwende talk. I think that Zeitenwende actually is um, a somewhat misleading uh, term, to be honest. I know it's very current, but if, if you were to ask me to place the Zeitenwende, I would place the Zeitenwende in 2008, 2009. That's when I would say the post Cold War world ended, and we're now. Kind of midway through some new or somewhere in a new stage and this stage has been characterized by a lot of jolts to um, the role of the west and europe in the international system and one perhaps the most dramatic on europe by far is the russian invasion of ukraine just earlier this year but um i i would like, uh, if people are interested, uh, I'll conclude here, but I would like to talk a little bit about what I think the U.S. should do in this um, uh, situation, because my job was always to sort of try to interpret the developments abroad in the in terms of American interests and American policy, and then propose to my superiors back in Washington what we should do about it. And I have some ideas about what we should do about it. This is just a teaser, but um, I think uh, I'll just hold off on those uh, for the Q&A period. People are interested. Thank you very much.